Well, as always, it's a pleasure of mine to be able to stand in this pulpit, just in front of you guys this morning, be able to open up um, the Bible, open up to the book of Philippians, where we're going to be at again this morning. Uh, For some of you who were here last week, we began um, basically our walk through this New Testament book, and hopefully um, you guys received one of those Philippian uh, journals when you came in, and hopefully that's just an aid for you maybe to take notes here on Sunday or just during the week. You can use that however you wish. That's our gift to you um, as a church. Now, if you are using one of those black pew Bibles, though, go ahead and open it up to Philippians 1. That's going to be on page 980. And we're just going to be taking on the next three verses, verses 3 through 6. Now, as I mentioned last week, not only we're we going to be slowly walking through this, this book, this letter of the Apostle Paul to this church in Philippi, but we're also going to be hopefully pulling out some of the, the finer details because Paul doesn't waste any words, right? He doesn't, he doesn't throw in fluff just to try to make a letter longer than, than it would be without it. Uh, he simply wants to always communicate deep realities of who he is in Christ and also who the church is in Christ and always pointing our gaze and our adoration towards him. And so last week we began to see that Paul started this letter by mentioning that he belongs to Christ Jesus in verse 1. That he is a servant of him, a bondservant of him. That even though he was once enslaved to sin, he no longer is enslaved to sin anymore. But in fact, now Christ is his master, that good master who loves him and cares for him and has died for him. And we also learned that Paul calls the church in Philippi the saints, which means the set-apart ones. That, that Paul doesn't view just Christians as simply, you know, just other people trying to, to figure out their way in life, but rather these are people that have been set apart by God, saved by him, chosen by him. And the reason why Paul begins that way is because identity, church, identity always precedes action, right? It always precedes action. What you do always flows out of who you are. And so Paul just begins, those first two verses we looked at last week with, this is who you are, church. This is who I am. Remember that. Now in verses 3 through 6, where we're going to be today in chapter 1, I believe that Paul, he's just going to kind of explode with this gratitude and joy in just these few verses. These words that he just simply has to get off his chest, right? He has to to tell them, the church of Philippi, how he feels about them. And he wants to remind the Philippians of the joy that he has had in his thoughts and his prayers Because Paul simply cannot share what God is doing in him without reminding them what the work of what Christ has done in that church, in that church. And so Paul begins just to, and we'll we'll read it here in a second, but he begins just to speak of what's most important to him in this moment, right? It comes off at just the beginning of his conversation. And you guys know this, you know this reality, because when you speak to someone, right, when you have a conversation with someone, what is most important to them or most important to you will always come up in a conversation. Now, I'm not talking about like if you're just talking to a stranger at a coffee shop. I'm talking about like if you're sitting down with one of your best friends or you're sitting down with a family member, what you are thinking about the most, what is most dear to your heart, the most 
that thing that's on the, the front of your mind all the time, that will always come out in your conversations. It does. And it's because of that. It's important to you. You know, when, when a friend asks you, how are you doing? It's not the grocery store, how are you doing, right? You, I hope you know the difference of that. There are people in your life, when they ask you, how are you doing? Or what's going on? They're not expecting a nothing. Or like, I'm good. They're expecting you to actually answer them. You, we need those people in our lives. Right? I'm not saying that the person at the coffee shop is wanting you to divulge everything about your life in that moment. But I hope that there's people that when they ask you that question, they're actually expecting a real answer. And so I think what Paul is going to begin, just to, so I can use just that, that illustration a little bit, I think Paul is going to begin just to unpack of how is he doing, right? He's writing this letter to this church that he cares about and he loves, and he's just beginning by sharing with them, hey, this is how I'm doing. This is how I'm doing. And he's going to talk about a couple of different things just to highlight. He's going to talk about the past. He's going to talk about the present. And he's even going to talk about the future. All things that we know deeply shape and affect who we are as people. But let's go ahead and just stop there for a moment. Let me just pray for us one more time. I'm going to just pray for you that, that this passage of Scripture, this, this piece of the Word of God would just impact you this morning. And I would pray that as I'm doing that, that you would pray for me that I'd be able to preach and exalt Jesus, rightly so, from here. But let's go ahead and just bow our heads one more time. Please pray for me as I pray for you. Well, Father, thank you. Thank you for this moment that we can come together again. Thank you for this moment that we can open up the Bible, that we're not, we don't have to guess what you're like. We don't have to guess what you've been up to in the world. But we can look back on your, your word and see exactly who you are, exactly what you've done. And let that play into the reality of what we want you to do today and know that you are doing. So God, I pray for every single person in this room this morning. God, I, I pray for those even that, that are on vacations, that are, that are listening online. God, that, that you would allow just the words just to, to jump off the page, to be illuminated in a special way, that they'd be able to see who you are and what you've done for them in a new, fresh way. God, I also pray for our, our kids in, in, the, in the back. I pray for our teachers, all for those little ones, that as they're just learning about the promises of God this morning, as they're being able to see these same realities and what we're going to look at this morning, that they would uh, just be impacted and their little minds and their little hearts would, like all of us, walk out of here today loving you far more than when they first walked in. And to that end, um, I need your help. So Lord, we, we lift all these things up to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So Philippians chapter 1, we're just going to be reading verses 3 through 6 this morning. Let me go ahead and just read that for us. It says, I thank my God... And all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Church, that is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, we're thankful for the word of God. All right, so in verse 3, Paul begins by mentioning to this church that he has been thinking of them, right? He is thankful for them. 
that the front of his mind is Paul's thankfulness for people, right? You see that in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Now that is a, a mark of Paul. Paul, whenever you read, and by the way, if you're, not, if you're new to Bible study, the Apostle Paul wrote a majority of the New Testament, Right? There are many letters to churches or letters to different people that he is discipling in the New Testament. So we have a lot of the words of Paul. And one of the themes that you would notice if you were to go through all of Paul's letters or epistles as they're called is that Paul is not concerned with things. Right? He's not concerned with things. In fact, whenever you see Paul thanking God for something, almost entirely it's about people. See, Paul, and I think this is a mark of a, just a Christian, a Christian that's deeply affected by the person and work of Jesus is that when you are thankful for something, it's almost always people, always people in which God has been using in your life, that you are other-centered, that you're not about yourself, right? That's part of just of dying to self and walking with Christ is that you begin to just automatically, your heart just bleeds for other people and so you're thankful for them. Because here's the truth too. Paul, and we'll learn this later on in verse 12, which at my pace we're going to get to in like two months. In verse 12, we actually begin to see that Paul's sitting in a prison cell. He's sitting in a prison cell awaiting his death, but you would have no idea by these first few verses, would you? You would have no idea because Paul is concerned with people. He loves them. He loves this church. And let's look at, what, why, does he, why does he love them? Why is he thankful for them? Look at verse 4. He says, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. So not only is Paul thinking of these people, but he's praying for them. He's praying about them. He's talking to God about them. And I think there's a couple of things we can just see that Paul is, is communicating to us about, about how he feels about this church. And because Paul admits here in verse 4 that his prayer life is being impacted by these people. Look at it again, verse 4. It says, always in every prayer of mine for you, she's like, I've been praying about you, and you've been making my prayer with joy. You have actually been impacting my prayer life. You've been impacting the way that I talk to God, which is absolutely fascinating. Then he says, and the thought of these people, the thought of when I pray about you, when I think about you, when I'm talking to God, and you come up, I have joy. I have joy. Now, I mentioned last week, joy is like a theme of this entire letter, right? That's why we have the joy you know, sign out here. We have a joy sign um, in the lobby because joy is something that Paul constantly goes back to in this letter. And remember, it's not the joy of this world, right? The joy of this world is more like the emotion of happiness. You know, something that you basically feel internally when things are going well, you're joyful, like you're, you're, you're giddy, you're excited, you're, you're thankful. That's the world's joy. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not the joy that he's talking about here. Because the world's joy can be taken away at any moment, right? We know this. Like your happiness is temperamental, right? There could be something that will happen before you leave these doors walking out of here today that you would have lost your joy. You know, maybe you spilled your coffee. Maybe you forgot your coffee. Drink coffee is, I guess, the, the theme that's on my own mind when you leave here. <clears throat> but Paul is talking about biblical joy in this moment, a joy that's part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, 
It's an exuberance of deep satisfaction and contentment in your Lord, in God himself. When God is your Lord and Jesus is your Savior, Paul is saying, when I think about you, I I get this sense of joy. This sense of joy, this deep satisfaction, this deep contentment, this deep love that's not based off of my circumstances. Right? Because things are not going well for Paul in worldly terms. He's sitting in a jail cell, awaiting to be executed. But he's saying, no, but when I think about you, I'm praying. And when I'm praying, I have joy. I have joy. And then look at verse 5. He gives us a little bit indication of how this is even possible. Verse 5, he says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul tells us why he has joy. This is why I can celebrate and thank God every time I think of you because of your partnership in the gospel. Because you have partnered me, partnered with me in the gospel. <clears throat> now let me just unpack that for a moment because we can, we can skip over that really quickly. That word partner in, in the original Greek language, that's what the New Testament was written in. That's what Paul wrote in. Is the Greek word koinonia. Now, that is often translated fellowship. Another English translation of that would be fellowship, right? And that's how a lot of, a lot of people translate, and it's a good translation. But how often then do when we think about fellowship or Christian fellowship or Christian koinonia, do we think about simply Christians hanging out together, right? When we think about fellowship as Christians, we're thinking about maybe having a meal together, or just hanging out, just happen to be at the, the same place at the same time, and that is fellowship in our minds. Now, I think that's a part of fellowship. Absolutely. That is, that is koinonia. But I think it's more than that. And that's why I think the English you know, translators of the book of Philippians, when they were walking through this, and they were seeing this word and trying to see within the context of how Paul was writing koinonia, they put partners instead of fellowship. Because I think what Paul was trying to get at is, I'm not, I don't have joy in my heart simply because we had some good times in the past. I don't have joy in my heart because we had a meal together all those years ago. But I have joy in my heart because we have partnered together. We have almost like a business transaction. We have shook hands on something that is so important to the both of us. That partnership in the gospel that partnership, meaning that, hey, we're going to join together for the most important mission that the world's ever seen. The most important mission the world's ever seen is that to go and preach the gospel, to go and tell people about what Christ has done, to go and tell people that Jesus, who lived a sinless life, got on a Roman cross and died the death for sinners like you and I. See, Paul is saying, we partner together to make that message known, that good news known. And it brings joy to my heart knowing that that is still active, right? It's not a we were partners, that we are partners. We are partners in the gospel, that we're serving together, we're giving together, we're living out life together, right? That we're preaching about the message of grace still, that we're still worshiping God and God alone, that we're allowing him to fuel us with love and adoration for him and for others. See, Paul is trying to highlight that I, I wanted to be your, I'm, I'm your partner in this. We're partners in this. Like members of the same team. 
And you know this if you've ever been a part of a team that has gone through trial together. Maybe it was a sport team, maybe, maybe you served in the military, maybe it was a different avenue. You know that there's a partnership in there. When you are counting on other people to have your back, to be able to love and support you, that you'd be on the mission together and maybe have times of reprieve where you're gathering together and going over, how can we do it better? You know that it's not, you're not just hanging out in that moment. You're partners. You're partners in that moment. But notice, <clears throat> Paul highlights what their partner is in, and that is in the gospel. And here's why I want to highlight that. Especially when it comes to church. Paul makes mention that they are partners in the gospel, right? In that good news of Jesus Christ. So what is that, what is that telling us then? That he's saying, hey, we're, we're not partners because we all share the same musical preferences. We're not partners because we all have the same political identity. We're not partners because we have, you know, maybe some kind of personality that we're all hovering around. You see, because those can be temptations of every single church. But Paul wants to make clear, explicit motion that we are partners in what? In the gospel. Because all those things, you, you may have experienced that. Those things can change. Those things can dominate a church. Those things can take you off of what is most important, take you in a completely direction that you don't want to go. And so Paul's saying, I thank you because we didn't partner in those third tier things, but we partnered in the primary thing, and that is the gospel, the thing that will not change, the thing that's not about us, but about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So we've partnered in that reality. And because I can promise you, church, when you have a group of people that are partnered for that and not other things, when you have a group of people that are partnered for that mission, there's going to be a ton of joy that comes out of it. I think that's a lot what's happening here. Even though we're a small church, I've told you guys this in the past, man, I love being here because the people that call this place home I know that they have a deep partnership, not in me, but in the gospel. It's a joy. It's a joy of mine. And then Paul makes a little, uh, little info on the end of verse 5. You turn back there. So, so because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. From the first day until now. Now, as I mentioned, Paul probably uh, planted this church about 10 years ago, 10 years ago. So he's looking back from that first day, it's about 10 years ago from when he's writing this. And what I'd like to do is, in the book of Acts, the book of Acts, which is basically, and the reason why it's called the book of Acts, it's, it's the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the first disciples. As they went out and plant churches and told people about the gospel, we see a lot of these early churches, how they got started. And we actually have record of how the church in Philippi got started. Of when Paul says, I thank God for my partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, we can actually look at that first day. What was that first day like? And that's what I want to do. So go ahead. If you have your full Bible, if you only brought your journal, that's one of the downfalls of the journal is you're stuck there. But if you have your full Bible, go ahead and um, turn back to the book of Acts. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 16 
is where we see the account of how the church in Philippi actually got started. If you're using one of those Black Pew Bibles, that's going to be on page 925. 925. <clears throat> now, a little background. Paul, who's the author of Philippians, this is the account of how one of his missionary journeys. So basically, when Paul got saved, and we looked at that last week, when Paul got saved, he began this endeavor to go wherever he could to preach about the good news of what Jesus has done on the cross, the good news of his resurrection, the good news of his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. And, and so this missionary journey, we learned previously in Acts 16 that he picked up Timothy, who's also mentioned in Philippians, and they're trying to figure out where in the world they want to go and preach the gospel. Right? Where they want to go to tell people about the good news. Because remember, the world didn't know anything about Jesus. Right? Jesus had just resurrected. He had just ascended. The world did not know about Christ. And so Paul felt this compelling, like, I need to go to the whole world and tell them. Because if I don't go, who's going to go tell them? Right? Which should be the attitude of every single Christian. Send me. Send me, Lord. And so Acts 16, starting in verse 6, and I'm just going gonna, gonna to quickly read through this, but I want you guys to see the story of how this church got started. It says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mesia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mesia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi. Which is, the lead, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. Okay, so that's how they got to Philippi. Now, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now let me take a quick pause there for a moment. So basically God uh, works in, in a, just a sovereign way for Paul to end up in Philippi and not another place. Right, which you guys have, I'm sure many of you guys have experienced that. You thought in your head that you were going to go somewhere, but yet you found yourself a completely different place. But yet, that's exactly where God wanted you. It's exactly where God wanted you. So Paul goes into the city, and he finds a prayer group. Right? And there's this woman named Lydia, who's a, a, we learn that she's a wealthy lady. She's a seller of purple goods, and, and purple was kind of a clothing of, of royalty. It was very fancy. Right? It was, it was the, the top tier uh, of colors and, and fabric. So to be a seller of purple goods meant that you were basically a pretty wealthy business person. So Paul starts talking to this prayer group, and Lydia clearly understands the gospel. 
in this conversation with Paul, and it's likely that Paul would simply just ask them what they were praying about, maybe shared who God is and what he has done for them. They learned about Jesus and his gospel. She believed. It says that her, her heart was opened. And so she wanted to proclaim her faith in Jesus by being baptized. So they baptized her and her family. Here's the gospel as well because we learn that the whole family, her whole household then was baptized. So day one, Lydia gets saved. Lydia gets saved. But let's continue. Look at verse 16. Now, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So Lydia gets saved, right? They're going to go pray some more. Maybe they're going back to Lydia's house. And there's this girl that's walking beside them that Paul makes mention here in the book of Acts, or or Luke rather, that she's basically demon-possessed. She has a spirit of divination, which means that she was being oppressed by a spiritual demon. Spiritual demon. And, And so she's yelling out that they are servants of the Most High God. Now, is that true? Absolutely, it's true. So Paul told us in the book of beginning of Philippians. But it says that Paul's greatly annoyed. Now, why is that? Well, one, we don't really know. I think my conjecture is that she, he was annoyed because even though the spirit, the demon was basically speaking truth, he was doing it in a condescending, maybe, you know, satirical way. It's like, oh, these guys are servants of the Most High God. And just kept saying it and kept saying it and kept saying it. So Paul's like, you're driving me crazy. You're annoying me. You're absolutely annoying me. Remember, Paul used to kill people, right? Paul used to be a Christian terrorist, right? He had skills. He had skills that this this demon did not want to be used on him. But what does Paul do? He does basically this quick exorcism. He just speaks very quickly. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And the spirit came out of her. Let's not miss just the craziness that we read in the Bible, right? Now, here's another just real quick thought on this before we move on, is why can't Hollywood portray exorcism like this? Because this is how the Bible portrays it, right? You guys know this, and I don't, and I don't, I don't, I don't watch, you know, those movies because I don't find them entertaining, but you guys know this reality, right, with these, you know, haunted places with these demon-possessed little girls, right? If the priest or a pastor shows up to one of these places, what's about to happen to him? He's about to get his butt kicked, right? He's going to go home crying. That's what we see in every single movie that's made. But that's not what we see in the Bible, what do we see in the Bible? Paul just says, hey, you know what? In the name of Jesus Christ, under his authority, you got to leave. you got to go. And this demon flees. Flees. That's the reality. It's not this, this equal power and see who, where the struggle comes from and see who's going to win in the end. Right? Will, will the domain of darkness win or will the domain of light win? That's not what we see in the Bible. Light wins every single time. And easily, I could add. All he does is simply say, hey, you can't be around here. Christ has authority over this girl. 
Christ has authority over her because he made her. You have to leave. You have no possession of her. She belongs to me. It's what Jesus reminded the disciples, right, in the Great Commission. All authority belongs to me. Paul was simply just reminding the demon of that reality. So it's likely then that this little girl began following uh, Paul and the others and became a believer in Christ. We see throughout the New Testament when someone's freed from demonic oppression, they, be, they become followers of Christ because they see who set them free. They see who released them. They see who took the bondage that we're in and turned to the one who set them free. But let's keep going. Look at verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So basically, there was people that were pimping out this demon-possessed little girl, using the power of the demon to suit their own practices. So she was, it says, kind of like a fortune teller, be able to see things, and they were, they were charging uh, people to come and, and experience and be with this little girl. But now that the demon had fled, they had lost their business model, right? They had lost everything. And so they're mad, and so they go to the Roman officials and say, hey, these Jews, which is important because the Roman colony likely had some anti-Semitic flavor to them, like, these Jews are doing something that you don't want to keep happening. And so it says that they were arrested. They were arrested. Look at verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe, safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So Paul and Silas and maybe some of the others, but certainly Paul and Silas, after this all happened, they were beaten, right? They were thrown in prison unjustly, and what did they do? They started singing, reminding themselves of their hope and who their creator is. They were reminding themselves through song. That's why we sing songs on Sunday, church is to remind ourselves just through that conduit of what we believe and why it matters to us. Look at verse 26, and it says, And suddenly there was a great earthquake. We know about those. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Right? So this jailer who was in charge of these men, this earthquake happens, and all of a sudden, right, the stocks are broken, the, the jail doors go up, and it's dark, and he's like, they've all escaped. I'm dead. I'm a dead man. I let this happen on my watch. And it says he drew his sword because he was going to kill himself. Because either what was going to happen was, one is Rome was going to kill him for faulting in his duty. Or his family was going to be so shamed to death that it would be better if he was dead than to be alive. And so the jailer basically takes out his sword and is about to kill himself. To basically take the first step in what he knows what will be coming regardless. But then Paul, in the dark, says, no, 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 don't kill yourself. 
We're all right here. We're all right here. Don't kill yourself. Put, put it away. Look at verse 29. It says, And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he, then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? See, this jailer, this little girl, this rich woman, Lydia, all three of them in a short amount of time were confronted with the reality of who the God of all creation is. They were confronted with the reality that they were sinners in need of a savior. Right? We can see this just from the language that this jailer used. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He doesn't tell them, hey, tell me about this God. You know, it seems like he's all powerful. He's got to really, I think he could really work for me. He could do a lot of things for me. No, the first thing he went to is, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I need to be saved. And what did they say in verse 31? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in this house. In verse 33, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his family. Family. Now, we'll go ahead and just uh, stop there in the book of Acts. But what I want to point out just in looking at that account of how the church in Philippi got started is it got started with those three people, right? A businesswoman, a former demon-possessed girl, and a Roman jailer and their families. This is who God goes after. Like, well, what do you mean? None of those people are alike. Exactly. There is no one outside of the saving work of Christ. There is no one, despite their trajectory, despite their occupation, despite their past, that is beyond what God can do in their life. And so Paul is highlighting this and reminding this Philippian church 10 years later, this is how it got started, is was God was on the move. God decided to do something in your life. God decided to reveal himself to you in a unique and special way. Remember that. Remember how you partnered with me then. Right, because in all likelihood, you know, we don't have really what the rest of the story looks like because Paul um, moved on in the book of Acts to plant more churches. But certainly these three families were that core team that began teaching everybody else in Philippi that they could get, you know, in front of about what God had done. Not just about what he had done in, you know, releasing them from spiritual you know, oppression or, or by, you know, having these great earthquake come. Those signs and wonders that we see in the book of Acts, they are there to serve the purpose of showcasing this is the God who is real. It's to authenticate their, their message. Now, we don't need those same signs today because we have them in the word of God. We can look back and see this is true. This is right. See, Christianity is for everybody. It's not just if you have a certain bent or if you grew up in a certain type of home. Acts 16 proves to us that it goes out to everybody who is in need. Everybody who's in need of a Savior. And church, who's in need of a Savior? Every single one of us. And so when Paul is remembering this church, right, and remembering what God did on that first day, he's reminded about the power of the gospel, 
right? The power of God to save those whom thought they were unsavable or those that thought they made such a mistake in their life, they might as well just kill themselves. Paul says, no, 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 no. I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. And so Paul's remembrance of the past in their current partnership encourages them so much, right? So much that he then wants to speak to their future. Go back to the book of Philippians. Look at verse 6, church. Because of the past and because of the present, he has so much encouragement that what does he say in verse 6? And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Church, that's one of the greatest lines in all the Bible. If you are a highlighter or a note taker or you want to start today, underline that one. Underline that one. That's a truth that every single Christian needs to remember. Now, in context, right, Paul is speaking to the church in Philippi. Absolutely. He's, he's reminding them, hey, remember your past. Remember your current partnership and know this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's reminding them before he gets into all of the, the details of what he's writing to them about, and we'll get to that in the coming weeks. He's just simply reminding, remember who God is. Remember what he has done. Remember that he is not done with you. He is not done with you. See, there are no people left unfinished who are in Christ. There's no people left unfinished if you are in Christ. That not, God never gives up on what he starts. And Paul's encouraging that church here. Hey, remember that day of redemption? Remember how that started? God is going to figure it out. He is going to make everything which he promised would come true, come true. And he says, ultimately, that might be at the day of Jesus Christ, right? Well, we know this will ultimately come true. And what's the day of Jesus Christ? That's the day where God is going to make everything right, right? Where his forever throne will be established. When God ultimately deals with sin and death forever and abolishes them for all of eternity. That's the day of Jesus Christ. But the main idea is that God will never let you go. Right? That he will never let you go. That there is this preservation for all of those who trust in him. And Paul rightly puts the emphasis on who? It's not on the Philippians. It doesn't say, I'm sure of this, that if you just work really hard, it's going to work out in the end. It's not what he says. But he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. This is the sovereignty of God, church. That he who began something in you will bring it to completion in his own timing according to his own will for his own purposes we all need to be reminded of that because we get into this into a thought pattern that i know i do and i and i know many people in this church do that we tend to the longer that we're walking with christ the longer that we we start to get this itch of maybe i'm not doing enough or what happens if I start doing something that I thought I would never do? Will God abandon me? What if I don't have the religious zeal, and I mean that in a good way, the religious zeal to share about my faith like I did on that first day? Am I, am I even a Christian? Now we need to, to I think, you know, 
answer those questions the best we can and, and look at if there is sin in our life that we need to repent of. That's causing maybe some of those things to happen. But the main part is what Paul is getting at is Christianity is not about you holding on to God, but God holding on to you, right? It's not about, hey, will I ever fail God? Because we all know we do. We do. Even if we're Christians, we still sin, don't we? We hope that doesn't happen as as much as it used to. We hope that we're always growing in our faith, right? Always repenting of sins. But it's not about, will I ever fail God? Christianity is about, will God ever fail me? Verse 6 says, absolutely not. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let me show you this from a quote from John Calvin. He was a a reform, one of the reformers in the, the 15th. Um, hundreds who, who brought a lot of light into grace and God's working in the church. And this is what he said about this verse and why it matters for every single Christian. He says, God does not forsake the work which, which his own hands have begun. As the prophet bears witness, we are the work of his hands. Therefore, we will complete what he has begun in us. When I say that we are the work of his hands, I do not refer to mere creation but to the calling by which we are adopted into the number of his sons. For it is a token to us of our election that the Lord has called us effectually to himself by his spirit. Calvin's just trying to encourage the church. If God made you with his hands, if he saved you with his hands, right? he's the one who opened your heart to him, you think that you can just, he's just going to walk away from you? Absolutely not. He doesn't forsake what he has started. So what do we do with that then, right? What do we do with that when we walk out of here? Like, what do we do with that verse then if it's going to be in our, in our Bibles for as long as God gives us, right? And we turn and we can see that verse 6 is highlighted or underlined. What are we supposed to do with that then in a few weeks from now, years from now, decades from now? I think we remember his grace. We remember everything in which he started. We remember the partnership that we have in the gospel with others. That partnership that can help us look back and see that God is not done with us, right? We can remember that it's all about him. We can remember that the joy that can be found in him. We can remember that he isn't done with us. We can remember that the promises that he makes, he will bring to completion. The Bible says that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus and Christ, all of the promises of God. We can remember that God started a work in you and he will bring it to completion. And I pray that you have people in your life when they're asking, how are you doing? What's going on? You can be honest with them, but then they can also be honest with you and say, you know what I'm seeing? I'm seeing God working in your life in this way. I'm seeing God bring this into more of a completion than it was a year ago, a month ago, two decades ago. I'm seeing God work in your life that I never thought that I'd ever see him work in your life. And I want to praise God in front of you for that. That's why we need a partnership in the gospel. Where else are we going to get this? Where else are we going to get this? See, church, Paul, remember, he's not just writing to isolated Christians. He's writing to a church which has such a powerful role in our life. 
So he's saying to the church in Philippi, and I think us today, remember the first day. Remember the first day. Remember what he has done. Remember that he is not done with working in your life. And I pray that if you don't know Christ, maybe you come in here and you're just kind of investigating Christianity or you're not quite sure where you're at. One is, I'm, I'm glad that you're here. You're welcome to be, come here for as long as you want with no pressure to profess something that you don't believe. But I pray that this may be that first day for you. That first day when you realize that you were in need of a savior. That you're like that jailer saying, how can I be saved? Because I understand that in and of myself, I need somebody. I need somebody. I need somebody outside of me. That's Jesus. That's what he does. He's the one who lived that life that you could not live. The one that you've been trying to live, but you know you've been failing. He's the one that lived it. And he's the one who died on the cross for you. He's the one that atoned for your sins. He's the one that loves you with a love that nobody else will ever be able to show you in this world. And so I pray that maybe, maybe today is that first day. That first day. And you can look back and go, remember that first day? Man, look what God has done. Or maybe... Maybe another point of application simply could be that when you think about a partner in the gospel, you would say that that doesn't describe you. That even though that you're a believer in Christ, even though that you have turned from your sins and trusted in his person and work, when it comes down to the reality of it, you're just a constant visitor in a church. But you're not a partner. You just happen to sometimes be around Christmas at the same time, but you've never partnered to do anything with that. You've never taken the step to say, I want to get off the sidelines and I want to get in the game. I want to be part of, of being able to help proclaim the good news of Christ. I want to be part of his work. I want to serve the church. I want to serve my family. I want to serve those with the giftings that God has given me. Every single one of us has giftings. And in the church, we get to see those pour out and be used in unique and special ways. And so maybe, and I would just encourage you, if you feel like you've just been on the sidelines, be a partner. Be a partner in the gospel. Allow the joy that comes from that to come into your life. This church needs you. I know that. I know that. I know that this valley needs you to be in the game, if I could use that. There's thousands and thousands of people who do not know Christ this morning. There's probably upwards of 95% of this community did not step foot into a church this morning. See, the harvest is plentiful. It's just the laborers are few. Partner in the gospel would be my encouragement to you. But do it in a way because of what God has already done. And you just want to be a part of that. What grace, though, church, that when, and I pray that when we walk out of here today, that we can simply maybe join Paul and think about the past. And when we think about the past and we, when we think about our prayers, it's going to lead to joy and love and affection, not for just myself or for things, but for people. And then also let just not only the past, but the present, but the future. Just be a, a, a guiding principle for you. It's like, okay, if God is on my side, then who can be against me? What does it matter if who's against me if God is for me? And let's do it.
Let's go for it. Let's go for it. All right, church, let's go ahead and just stop there and let's, let's pray and then we'll, we'll sing a, one more song and do a couple more things, but just let's pray one more time. Well, Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for all the ways that you've allowed us to partner in the gospel. And the only way that that was possible is because you have opened our hearts to you. God, it's a gift of grace. It's a gift of sovereignty. It's a, it's a gift of, of just your undeserved love and what you've bestowed upon us. And God, I pray that you just allow that love to just be reminded of my own heart this morning. And God, I also pray that if, if there is someone in this room that doesn't know you, doesn't know you in this way, doesn't know you as Savior, that they would be like that jailer and simply come and say, how do I be saved? And they would do the same thing, which they were did, is simply say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him and what he has loved. Believe into him that he has dealt with your sins. Because that's what you have done, Lord. You have dealt with sins on the cross and to which we are uh, forever grateful for. And God, I pray that from the first day until now, we will be people marked by that reality. I pray all of this in your mighty name. Amen.